You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. First of all, it proves that, that one person can make a difference, which I think is pretty important. Seattle is growing at an extraordinary rate. As more people and money flow into the city, the skyline and neighborhoods are being transformed. What will the future of Seattle and its neighborhoods look like? Only time will tell, as various people and groups jockey for position to have their vision for Seattle unfold. I'm Jeff Shulman. And today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast offers guidance into how you can influence the future of this city. You'll hear from three people who have organized, lobbied, or litigated to play a role in determining what Seattle will look like for years to come. Through these examples, you'll have a better understanding of how you can have your voice be heard as the city changes around you. Also, through meeting these three changemakers, you will get perspective on the variety of efforts underway to set policy. This is the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast, a season bringing you diverse perspectives on the physical transformation underway as the city is experiencing an economic and population boom. Previously, you heard from a longtime Seattle resident who has seen the buildings and businesses change around her. In that vicinity, they used to be just black. At one point, and uh, you turn around and you see all of a sudden now it looks like whatever money that they had to have a business doesn't make any difference anymore once the big man comes in with millions and millions of dollars and comes in with the wrecking ball. And I remember us just being sold together back in the 60s and the 70s, and um, there's very few that are left. You heard from two real estate developers who gave an inside look into their development process and how you can influence it. Liz Dunn of Dunn & Hobbs appeared last week. And then I I look for good streets, you know, streets that have great trees and wide sidewalks. And I love on-street parking, even though, you know, I'm as big an advocate as anyone for getting out of our cars, but it just creates another layer between the traffic and the pedestrian. Last week also featured an extended interview with Joe Ferguson of Lake Union Partners. You know, as we've seen with recent election and voter turnout, you know, that that engagement is what makes the difference, right? So if we're all willing to kind of set aside that additional time to make the effort, then, you know, let's let's commit to that and be a part of the process. Today, you'll hear from pro-development lobbyist Roger Valdez. You'll also hear from architect Martin Kaplan who has influenced the implementation of City Councilmember Mike O'Brien's Backyard Cottage legislation, the legislation that you heard about in Season 1 of Seattle Growth Podcast. You'll also hear from Ethan Phelps Goodman, who is leading Seattle Tech Workers for Housing. These three guests offer contrasting views on the future of Seattle, but also offer insight for those hoping to play a role in shaping our city. Now join me as I sit down with Roger Valdez. I am here with Roger Valdez. Uh, Roger has made headlines uh, in Seattle press quite a bit, fairly recently for his anti-tobacco stance, and most recently now as a a strong voice for growth and uh, the director of Smart Growth Seattle. Roger, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Let's talk about you personally a little bit. How long have you lived in Seattle? I've lived in Seattle now for 23 years. And what brought you here? Uh, I came up here originally to go to college at University of Puget Sound in Tacoma. Then I went to grad school for two years. Then I came back uh, basically just wanting to get a job and sort of live in the city and and be here. Um, and 
and I just I liked it uh, ever since I was a kid and visited the first couple times in, in the 80s when I was a teenager. I kind of fell in love with it. Tell me a little bit about Smart Growth Seattle. Well, Smart Growth Seattle was created originally as a advocacy organization, and we started looking at small lot infill development. And what we realized was that we needed something that was uh, pro-growth, but also pro-growth management act. In other words, supporting responsible, sensible, planned growth in urban areas, um, but also recognize the value of the market and the value of uh, private investment and variety and competition and all of those uh, concepts. Um, and there, there really wasn't any organization that reflected that. There were pro-growth groups that were pro-growth management, but they tended to be in favor of a lot of regulation and a lot of uh, imposition of rules. Then there was sort of free market-oriented groups, but they tended to be uh, pushing against Growth Management Act, like kind of seen a little bit more anti-Growth Management Act. And we wanted to kind of put those two things together and occupy the the market of ideas that was pro-growth, pro-market, um, and pro-growth management act. And so what do you see as the benefit of the open market? Well, I mean, I think the way that price sends signals in a marketplace uh, is really important. And you think, well, what does that even mean? Well, price is a message. If, if it's too high, uh, it causes certain behavior. If it's too low, it causes certain behavior. And as it changes, it, it, it incentivizes and disincentivizes behavior. And one can either look at price and say it's the enemy. It's sort of like th this is bad. Or one can look at it and say it's sort of like the weather. It reflects uh, larger trends that are somewhat out of our control, but that we can learn to manage and prepare for and work around. And I think in the housing market and in the market of cities, uh, you know, the market is important for encouraging spontaneity, for allowing innovation and change, and for people to come up with new ideas, try them out, fail, learn, try again, and then succeed. So it doesn't solve problems by itself. People solve problems. What, what we want to do is we want to create space uh, to allow innovation, change, and development of ideas. And cities are great places to do that. And, and so you said the price speaks to you, or it's telling us something. Mm -hmm. What are the current Seattle prices telling you? So price, housing prices right now are telling us there's not enough housing, that there's too much regulation and too much uh, interference in the production side of, of housing by uh, local government. Prices are telling us right now not that there's a lot of greedy developers or that we're building expensive housing. It tells us that there's scarcity in the market. So you have renters competing with renters rather than landlords competing with landlords because there's not enough housing to go around. What regulations exactly would you like to see removed? Well, there are a myriad of things that tend to inhibit the production of housing. Um, some of them are things like... Uh, you know, fire safety and um, and earthquake, uh, you know, earthquake preparedness. But those are things that we really want to have. And this is why I say we're not, uh, this is not a libertarian perspective that says no regulation. There are regulations that are important to have. They raise the price of housing, but that's a price that's worth paying, I think. 
it's when you get into things around design and uh, sort of height, bulk, and scale of buildings and trying to micromanage the outcome of every single project to make sure that it looks a certain way, that everybody's happy with it when it's done, that it uh, conforms to certain design standards. I think those things are probably, first and foremost, the things that tends to to lengthen the time of production, which increases the, the cost of delivering the product to the market. What other changes would you like to see? Well... I would like to see us fundamentally change the narrative. Uh, I think the reality around development and housing in Seattle is one thing, but the story that we're telling is greedy developers blow into town. They buy up all this property with cash. They build with cash. Uh, they they sit back on the sidewalk as they're you know prepping the building to, to, to lease up, and they go, how much should we charge for these units? And then they laugh all the way to the bank. And it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, house, building housing is very complicated. It's very risky. It's not as risky as gambling. But the returns are modest compared to a lot of other investment vehicles. And so, you know, people are out there every day trying to make a living building housing. Builders and developers are standing in line at the coffee shop with you. They're riding their bikes in the bike lane next to you. They're sitting in traffic with you. Um, they just happen to be the guys that build the place you live or work. And so if we could change the story so that people would recognize that, that, that the thing that they're upset about is legitimate to be upset about, the aggravation of growth, the on discomfort, the, all the different things that go along with a lot of new people coming in, but that if we can focus on working together to solve those problems we're going to be better off than trying to identify villains to sort of drag in the streets and tax and fee and fine and punish and whatever. That is a multi-year, very, very difficult long-term problem that, that doesn't involve passing legislation or anything like that. It involves changing the way we look at the problem. What motivates you to be a part of this attempt to change the narrative and to encourage these uh, deregulations? Well, I think, you know, oddly, it goes back to the same thing that motivated me, what motivated me around tobacco, which was I, I looked at, at data, and we used to say tobacco use, uh, especially through smoking, was the leading preventable cause of death. And I think that that motivated me to, to figure out how do, we, how do we reorient people's perspective to say, if we really believe that that data is true then our actions would be radically different than what they are. And so I look at building and growth and housing the same way. You know, everybody walks around and says, oh, climate change, climate change is happening. And if we really believed what, 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 that that was true, we would be radically changing our behavior and really blowing up the city as the um, ideal place to, to put people as we grow. It's better for carbon emissions. It's better for energy efficiency. It's better for even sort of basic human interaction things. Like it pushes the, our problems together so we see them every day. We can't sort of push them off into a dark corner. But that isn't how we behave. We behave as if growth is this kind of um, toxic waste that is being foisted upon us. And it's like, no, no, no. We should be embracing it and welcoming it. And so for me, the, the thing that kind of gets me up in the morning with this is, can we do that? Can we figure out how to do that? Uh, because a lot of lives depend on it.
If you could speak to the homeowner who's concerned that by allowing this deregulation, there might be a developer who comes in, takes the home next to them, and makes changes that, in the homeowner's mind, destroy the neighborhood. Uh, what would you say to that person? I would say that that will happen. Uh, it's not going to destroy the neighborhood. Uh, it is an unknown, and so therefore I recognize your anxiety about it. Um, but I promise you that it will get better and that we'll work together to try to make sure that it, that it is. And to some degree, you're going to have to accept that things are going to change in our city and that some of those changes are going to be for the worse for you in particular. Some of those changes are going to be better for you in particular. But overall, everyone is going to benefit from these changes. And so you're going to need to um, work with those changes and we'll communicate about them and talk about them and we'll do it together, but we have to do it. And so the, there's no, the option of not doing it isn't on the table. It just isn't. And why is that? Because I think we need political leadership in the city that recognizes that change is not a, uh, something that we have any choice over. It's, it's reality. It's what's happening all the time. It's what's going to happen whether we like it or not. And so we can either be active and engaged with it uh, or we can pretend like we can stop it or like it's not happening or like it's a bad thing or it's a really super duper great thing. It just is what it is, you know? So we have to be able to work with it, try to make it as beneficial as possible. As you're a part of bringing about some changes here uh, regarding housing in particular, what do you hope stays the same as you look forward five, 10 years? I think what the big thing that Seattle has that a lot of other cities don't is, is real clearly uh, identified neighborhoods that have their own unique character, which some people might hear me say that and say, I thought he didn't care about neighborhood character. But I, I do. I think that Wallingford, U District, Capitol Hill, West Seattle, Admiral, Morgan Junction, all of these neighborhoods that we have you can say the, na- the, the, the name Admiral, and it conjures up, there's a certain vibe there, a certain thing there. Uh, I don't want Admiral neighborhood to remain exactly the same, but I think that the fact that we have these, these kind of nodes of neighborhood uh, quality and character that are changing all the time, it really makes our city unique and special. We need to maintain that. So you've been here over 20 years. Can you put the last five years into context as to how it feels, the, the pace of the economic and population growth in Seattle, how that feels to the other times within your life here? Well, you know, in, in the, the early 90s, I think the, you know, and, and, and into, the, for, into the first sort of dot-com boom, things were relatively slow-paced. And, and I think that people had a kind of... Uh, concern about growth, but it was not as pitched. And I would say that in the 90s, you had neighborhood plans and neighborhood organizations that were doing growth. And there was this kind of uh, peculiar thing about there's the, there's the street tree lady, or there's the guy that wants a park down the road. or And everybody was for something. And in the last five years, what I've seen is a lot more people who are defined in their brand in the neighborhood movement as what they're against. 
I'm against micro housing. I'm against up zones. I'm against the U district up zones. I mean, and you see these people come and you go, oh, this guy is against this. And that to me is a, an indication that we've lost leadership at the city level because in the 90s, we converted our anxiety about growth into positive advocacy about what we wanted it to look like. And in the subsequent years post uh, 2001, it became characterized by growth is coming. How can we stop it? How can we make it go away? Um, and in the 90s, it wasn't like that. It was really all about growth is coming. I'm really pissed off about it. But if it's coming, I want a bunch of street trees. You know, it was sort of this like, what am I going to get when it get when it comes? Um, it was more of a Santa Claus attitude than a, a Godzilla attitude. I mean, that's the way we see it now is that growth is Godzilla. It's this thing that's coming to destroy the city. How do we stop it? And and in the 90s, it was more about like, as long as it's coming, what do I get out of it? What is, what, what, what's in it for me? And if you could speak to the everyday citizens of Seattle and tell them what you believe that they could do or what they might uh, think to help us shape the dialogue or to help us um, move this city forward, what would you say to the everyday people of Seattle? Well, I, I would say, you know, you guys are... Uh, some very bright people uh, with a lot of uh, education and a lot of um, ideas. And I think the city of Seattle is full of people who are progressive, who are open-minded, who are welcoming of things like, uh, you know, marriage equality and, uh, you know, legalized marijuana and, you know, all these groovy things that are all about civil rights and social justice and whatever. Um, I think we can turn that sense of open-heartedness and open-mindedness to be welcoming of growth, and we can come up with policies that are going to be beneficial to everybody. I look at it like it's Thanksgiving dinner, and your son or daughter just brought over three kids that have no place to go. Are you going to you're going to tell them to go like sit outside in the front yard? No, you're going to welcome them in. You're going to find a couple of extra chairs, even if they're folding chairs and they're not quite the right size, and you're going to push them up to the table, and you're going to make room, and you're going to feed those kids. I know you will. That's what you're going to do. And if you don't do it, we're going to make you do it. But I believe that that people have that kind of heart in this city. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective. Oh, no uh, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. My next guest is influencing the future of a broad area of Seattle, single-family neighborhoods. As you may recall, Episode 6 of Season 1 explored various ways to build density in Seattle. City Councilmember Mike O'Brien shared details on his legislation meant to encourage detached accessory dwelling units on single-family lots across the city. To hear how some of your fellow community members responded to this legislation, join me as I sit down with Martin Kaplan. I am here with Martin Kaplan, the principal of Martin Henry Kaplan Architects, and somebody who's played a big role in the future of Seattle. Martin, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So before we get into all the roles that you've played in shaping the, the future look of our city, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? So I was born and raised here and uh, actually went to the University of Washington, started my practice uh, some decades ago. 
and uh, most of my work is in western Washington and on the west coast and as far east as Chicago, but uh, most of our work is in the Pacific Northwest. And from an early age, I was uh, involved in, in helping you know, grow our city smartly, and really it started here at the University of Washington where I worked with a professor, Victor Steinbrook, when he um, was involved in saving the Pike Place market, and I got involved with him in the campaign to save the market, and I've been busy ever since. Tell me, what are the latest initiatives that you've been working on as you hope to influence how the city changes going forward? Well, um, I um, uh, advanced an appeal on the backyard cottage uh, legislation that was first proposed by Mayor Murray, and then he handed it over to Councilmember O'Brien. And, um, and so I worked hard on that um, last year, and uh, am currently following that as well, um, along with a couple other initiatives that I've been involved with for some time, one being the, the upzone of uh, the Uptown neighborhood, which a lot of people think of as Lower Queen Anne. Um, and so we've been working on that for about eight years and, um, and a number of other things locally. I'm on the Queen Anne Community Council and I chair the Land Use Review Committee. And so we're involved in a number of initiatives within our planning area. And so the backyard cottage legislation that you're referring to, we had Mike O'Brien on my show back in season one. Can you tell me what's the latest with that legislation and, and where you are in the process of trying to reshape how that gets enacted? Really, in order to advance any change in, you know, large, uh, you know, impactful land use policy, the city has to undergo, a, you know, a number of different reviews to make sure that um, the change in policy is, is A, consistent with um, the strategies uh, that the city might have in the way we grow, uh, in the way we develop. And they also have to uh, kind of prove that there's really no environment environmental impacts uh, through what's called a SEPA process, Seattle Environmental Protection Act. And through that, um, there's a list of about 109 questions that the city, or in, in the case of building this building we're in right now, you have to fill out this, this form and discuss any kind of environmental impacts that exist. In this case, the city basically said in all 109 questions that rezoning 50% of the land area in the city of Seattle have not one environmental impact. Not one. You know, um, drainage, parking, water, privacy, um, you name it. They basically said there are no environmental impacts from changing zoning uh, of single-family land into multifamily land. Well, any reasonable person would understand that there are at least a few, if not many, and that those should be studied and mitigated somehow. And this process usually involves public input. In this particular case, Councilmember O'Brien held two very small meetings and really didn't go out to the public. Um, that's why we uh, appealed the legislation. We appealed um, the, well, let me back up, the city issued what's called a DNS, a, a Determination of Non-Significance. So if you as an applicant, or the city in this case as an applicant, fills out the SEPA checklist and says there are no environmental impacts, the city then reviews that and issues either a declaration of significance, a determination of significance, a DS, or a DNS, where they find no significant issues. Um, 
and and in this case they issued a dns they said there are no basically they agreed there's no environmental impacts that's the document that i appealed and others have a right to appeal that in, in, in this isn't kind of some special deal um and so through a through the course of the beginning of a year ago, I held a number of public meetings uh, in our Queen Anne community, but they involved many other communities. And through that course and inviting city planners to the meeting, uh, we found out that, that no work had been done to assess what real environmental impacts existed. So I felt that it was incumbent upon me or somebody else to say, well, wait a second, I think the public has a right to know what you're doing, number one, and really understand the issues regarding environmental impacts, because you say there are none, but there's a lot of people that think there might be a great deal of impacts when you rezone. When it's the largest rezone in the history of the city, and you're converting single-family land into multifamily property, obviously there are going to be environmental impacts. And so what are you hoping to accomplish with this appeal effort? What we hope to accomplish, we accomplished. The hearing examiner found in our favor and required the city of Seattle to back up and perform an environmental impact study. Um, and even laid out right in the appeal, that's what we asked for and that's what we got. So right now, uh, they're starting that process. And, you know, my purpose in that was to make sure that every person, every citizen in the city of Seattle, whether they, whether they own a piece of single-family land or whether they live in single-family properties, um, because about 20% of single-family properties are actually rented to renters. So um, it's a diverse cross-section of interests. And uh, throughout, through the environmental impact statement process, I expect, and I'll be following through, that the city reaches out to uh, educate people and to get input from people on what environmental impacts they feel might exist. And at the same time, feel it's incumbent upon the city to share in a transparent and open and inclusive way the results of all their studies to prove you there are impacts or there aren't impacts. And, and that's what's going to be happening soon. And so you're just one person in this very big city, and you've made a change here. What inspired you to get active in this cause? Well, it's a good question. Um, first of all, it proves that, that one person can make a difference, which I think is pretty important. But on a broader sense, the it, it's, it's not about me. But what inspired me to get involved in it was I was on the Seattle Planning Commission from about 2004 through about 2012. And in about 2006, uh, many of us were involved in drafting the original backyard cottage legislation. And we went through, you know, a pretty rigorous process of deciding, uh, or at least of proposing that people with large pieces of property, um, could build a small cottage in the back, backyard. And, and, uh, for a variety of reasons, for family, for, you know, um, for rental income, for a lot of different reasons. And we thought that it would probably be a good idea. And we took a model from Santa Cruz, California, and they were kind of leaders in this. And it seemed to be an appropriate thing that we could do in Seattle. So we studied it for at least a year. And we initiated a pilot program for three years in southeast Seattle. And then we were, went back in 2009 and evaluated the results of that. 2010 came to the city council and said, we think this is ready to go to prime time. This could go citywide. 
And I know the hard work that went into that. I know the decisions between uh, the decisions that we made regarding a lot of the uh, policy and, and, and kind of rules behind building a backyard cottage. And the process was okay until the HALA agenda came out and Mayor Murray uh, proposed rezoning all single-family land, which is not something that we on the Planning Commission ever found acceptable or within the proper limits of, of impacting people's lives and investments. So why I got involved with it, because I, just, I know the rigor that we put into studying the issue to come up with the limits on what we felt was appropriate, and Council Member O'Brien's legislation did not consider any of that. And to me, it was based on this ideology that if you build more houses in people's backyards, it will somehow provide affordable housing. And to me, it was, it was a smokescreen because it was not affordable housing. I've been practicing architecture for almost five decades and built a lot of projects over the years. And I proved during our hearing that the cost of these dadus would be two fifty to three hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more, and they would rent for three or four thousand dollars a month. And so, this was not a way to produce affordable housing. And I think it had to be challenged and, and discussed. And so, that's what the EIS process is going through now. So, it will prove to all of us either that there are impacts that should be mitigated, or maybe there's none. And a common argument is that there's the simple notion of supply and demand. And if you build enough housing, whether they themselves are necessarily affordable, that ultimately prices will start to fall or, or not rise as sharply. How do you respond to that argument? I mean, the supply and demand, you know, from 10,000 feet sounds kind of like an obvious position that some may take. However, th this is, you know, this is really specialized. This is... Um, building another home on somebody's property. And like I said, the economics oh, do not uh, support the fact that these are affordable in any way possible. Will they provide an extra unit? Um, uh, and, and we had a limit of 800 square feet. Councilmember O'Brien wants to make that 1,000 square feet. So at 1,000 square feet, you could have a small family live in there, and um, that would be fine. But in no way is it affordable housing. Um, you're going to spend, if it was 1,000 square feet, you're going to spend $3,500 a month in rent. You know, in addition to that, it has been legal citywide to build a backyard cottage since 2010. So for seven years, there's been, you know, very few restrictions on building a backyard cottage. And over that time, there's been about 220 people that have chosen to do so. So the idea that loosening up you know, some of the rules, which I contend uh, are really important rules, um, would all of a sudden produce thousands of units of backyard cottages when in the last seven years, arguably during a pretty robust time in our economy, there's been less than 250 units built, um, tends to prove itself that these are expensive, um, that they're not affordable housing, um, and that, you know, I think half the units that are built now are being rented out like Airbnbs, VRBOs, and for, for income. And um, so, you know, Councilmember O'Brien wants to change all kinds of rules like homeownership and all kinds of things. Um, 
anyway, they're not affordable housing. And then proponents of them argue that it could be a way to bring more income diversity into what's more and more becoming million-dollar neighborhoods in Seattle. How do you respond to, to that? Well, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I I supported the idea in 2006. I helped author the legislation, so it's not, a, it's not that I'm against building them. In fact, I'm all for it. Um, what I am for, though, is is the protections that we felt were really important in 2006 and in 2009, and the city council absolutely agreed with us. For instance, Jeff, I'll give you an idea. Councilmember O'Brien wants to basically get rid of ownership requirements. All right, we felt based on Santa Cruz and 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 other cities around the United States and Canada that having an ownership requirement that the owner of the property had to live in one of the two units. We felt that that was important for one really important reason. And that was that if you didn't require the owner to live on the property, everybody with a nail belt and a few friends with some money would just go start buying up houses that are affordable right now, and they would just start developing multifamily units on single-family land and then develop a real estate portfolio and rent all these units out. Um, some in neighborhoods have a problem with that for a lot of different reasons. So we feel that that's a huge environmental impact uh, to make that that change and converts really single-family land into investment multifamily property. Um, and there's a number of other changes that his legislation proposes that, that we feel uh, deserves a lot of study. And during our appeal hearing, we found out that they really didn't study these issues, and they ended up agreeing that a, the units would cost three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars, and to build and rent for three, three or four grand. We, we proved that they aren't affordable. We, we also proved uh, that, given the fact that one would erase the ownership requirement, it would convert a single-family properties into multifamily investment properties, which we feel is antithetical to the reason that people really like Seattle and half the people choose to live in single-family neighborhoods. Is there another part of the legislation that concerns you? Well, let's see. There's uh, the ownership is probably number one. Um, another issue that many people are concerned about is parking. Right now, there's a parking requirement. If you build a unit, you have to supply a parking spot for that unit. And we realize we're all driving less and having owning less cars, um, but we still don't have a transit system that can help everyone. And so I think that you have to be smart about making uh, policy regarding parking. And you have to consider, you know, my idea was is that, you know, what Councilmember O'Brien wants to do is create a one-size-fits-all piece of legislation, which is becoming popular now, and not taking a nuanced approach to say, well, these neighborhoods can get by with this, these neighborhoods can't. And so therefore, you know, we'll will will craft this legislation to address you know particular impacts that general neighborhoods have and there's just not that thought down at city hall it's like it's good for everybody and and i just don't think that's proper strategy and proper policy planning there's a lot of ways that you could have chosen to to try to shape the future of seattle in terms of the backyard cottages one you've done you you served on the the planning commission here you you chose to use the courts to, to legally challenge a legislation. How did you choose this particular path? There was really no choice, Jeff. 
when they submit a bill for legislation, a citizen has the right to challenge it by appealing, in this case, the SEPA de uh, designation of uh, DNS, a determination of non-significance. So any citizen can challenge it. That's, that's the only way. And so how did you choose to challenge it instead of maybe rallying your community and then trying to get new legislation passed that overturns it or amends it? We, along with, you know, probably hundreds of other people submitted comments and tried to change it. You know, we tried to go through the senior planners that were working with them on this and propose compromises um, that would, I think, benefit everybody. He wasn't interested in any compromises. So I was left with no other uh, choice. And as other people seek to influence the physical transformation of Seattle in their own ways, so maybe four backyard cottages or four legislation that you agree with or disagree with, what have you learned from this experience that would be helpful to them? Well, I think what's helpful uh, is to pay attention, okay? I mean, um, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of people that are enjoying the fruits uh, and the benefits of the growth of our city, but there's a lot of others that are kind of suffering through it. Uh, for a variety of different reasons. And City Hall is, you know, heading down a particular path. And there are opportunities for the public to weigh in on a number of different issues along the way. And hundreds of people do. And, uh, I mean, it's really important to, to pay attention. Any concluding thoughts? Well, it's got to be one of the greatest cities in the world. And uh, especially as a, a native, uh, when my, you know, talking to my grandfather when he came here two generations ago, uh, it's still a great place. And uh, except for the smoke in the air right now, it's, I'm, I'm just uh, damn happy this is where I was born and raised. Martin, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time and perspective today. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. The tech industry is thriving in Seattle. The reasons for which were explored in the first ever episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. And with tech bringing in many new residents with high-paying jobs, housing affordability has become a concern for people across a wide range of income levels. A local software engineer has decided to do something about it. To hear more about Seattle Tech Workers for Housing, join me as I sit down with Ethan Phelps Goodman. I am here with Ethan Phelps Goodman. He is the founder of Seattle Tech Workers for Housing. Ethan, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about the Seattle Tech Workers for Housing. Yeah, so um, you know, I've been working on housing issues in some form or another for about three years. Um, and I come from the tech industry, been a software developer all my life. And uh, I've just started to feel more and more that the, the tech industry you know, has a real responsibility um, to play a constructive role in, in the housing debate here in Seattle. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are, are ready to blame uh, the affordability crisis on the tech industry, uh, and some aspects of that I think are correct and some aspects aren't, um, but it definitely deserves a response from the community, uh, and I think there's just vastly more that the tech industry could and should be doing uh, to make sure that the tech boom benefits everyone in Seattle. And what would you like uh, the tech industry do to make sure the boom benefits everyone in Seattle? Is it with money, actions, anything you'd be more specific about? Yeah, so everything helps. Um, you know, I hear from people all the time in the tech industry who want to volunteer their skills. You know, they have very valuable skills and they want to be part of a solution. Um, so rooting people, 
to places where they can they can volunteer effectively is one thing. Uh, certainly, there's plenty of money within the tech community that um, um, already is being given to to plenty of good causes. Um, but what I'm particularly interested in in all this is pushing for political change. So I think at the end of the day, philanthropy is great, volunteering is great. We need those. Um, but it's really the policies that govern our city that have by far the greatest effect on on how the city grows and whether the boom uh, benefits just a few or benefits Seattle broadly. So uh, I'm very interested in, in getting the tech industry to become specifically more engaged in local politics and, and, and setting good policy. What is the benefit to the tech industry of caring about all residents instead of maybe grabbing as much as they can for themselves. <laughs> sure. sure. So housing affordability is, is at the center of all this. And um, to see you know, how that can be a detriment to the industry, uh, as well as to all the people of the area, you just have to look down to San Francisco, to the Bay Area. Um, and already, companies down there are having trouble hiring because almost no matter what they pay their workers, there just aren't enough homes. They just can't find places to live. So that's a real, uh, obviously a huge um, human cost down in the Bay Area, but it's also a business cost. The businesses down there are losing talent, and that talent's coming here because as unaffordable as we think of Seattle, it's actually half the price of San Francisco. So um, you know, for anybody who thinks we have it bad here, I, I always like to remind them it could be at least twice as bad as it is now. Do you have any specifics as to what you're seeking or just a general philosophy? Yeah, we have a general philosophy that um, there needs to be enough housing for everybody. So uh, I often talk about um, trying to promote uh, abundant and affordable housing. And that kind of gets at two sides of the coin, which is that we need enough housing for everybody. So we need to be able to to house all the new people who move here. Um, If we don't have new housing, but we do have new people moving in, they're going to push someone out. It's just a simple question of counting. If you have only a fixed amount of homes in a city and you know 10,000 new people move in with high-paying jobs, what can they do but push out 10,000 people with lower-paying jobs if we don't make more housing? So I, I think it's absolutely essential that we do build enough housing for everybody who's moving here. Uh, but on the other hand, that's not all we need to do. That's a start, but that's certainly not the finish. We need dramatically increased resources for affordable housing. And there are those who've been here for a long time in Seattle and are kind of concerned that the race for affordable housing and more housing is really building affordable housing for the next generation of Seattleites while displacing them with new buildings that they can't afford. Uh, do you have any comment on on those concerns? Yeah, one one point to make is just that right now there is no requirement for new buildings to have affordable housing, and so they, in a large part, don't. Um, so getting a mandate that every new building contribute to affordable housing is very important. Um, that will go some way, not the whole way, but some way towards addressing those, those fears. Um, the other is you know, smarter use of public money to build more affordable housing, uh, smarter uses of tax incentives. There's a proposal uh, that unfortunately didn't go anywhere in the state legislature last year, but we're hoping does better this year. Um, to give an incentive to uh, preserve existing affordable housing. Right now we have a lot of programs for how do you build new buildings, uh, but we don't have much in the way of how do you keep a building that's been there for 80 years and is affordable to the people in it now. How do you make sure that building stays around? Um, 
So that preservation tax incentive would be a, a great program that, that we're going to push on again this, uh, this coming legislative session. How long have you lived in Seattle? Uh, altogether about nine years. What have you learned in those nine years living in Seattle that informs your vision and hopes for the next nine or maybe even 20 years of Seattle? Well, I think Seattle um, you know, is grappling with these questions of change now, but I remember it was grappling with these questions of change in 2003 when I first came here. Um, and I also remember when I first visited here before moving, this was 2002, um, I thought, let me go stay in a hotel downtown so I can see the vibrancy of this city, so I can see what's really happening, like right in the thick of things. I'll stay downtown. And I, boy, was that a mistake in 2002. I stayed on Third Avenue and there was nothing. It was absolutely, and that's so funny to remember that that was just, you know, 14 years ago now when I didn't know Seattle at all and the streets were dead after 6 p.m. downtown. Um, so in a lot of ways, I'm optimistic. You know, it is great that the streets are lively, that they're full of people, that there's restaurants and shops and bars and um, just an explosion in jobs. Uh, so a lot of things are going um, very well. I'm also really happy that although we certainly haven't solved the affordability crisis by any means, there's a political will here that's trying to do something right now uh, that doesn't exist for the most part, down in the Bay Area, where their problems are worse. So um, not to say that we've got all the answers, but we've certainly got a political will to move towards solutions that I don't see in other cities. So I'm really optimistic that looking ahead five, 10 years from now, Seattle will really be seen as a leader in this space. And how could people find Seattle Tech Workers for Housing? So the URL there is ctechforhousing.org, or just Google Seattle Tech Workers for Housing is probably the easiest. Uh, or uh, uh, find us on Facebook or find us on Twitter. Ethan, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your perspective. I really appreciate hearing your voice today. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share about the battle for Seattle? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. I've enjoyed hearing from many listeners. Next week on Seattle Growth Podcast, we continue the conversation about the physical transformation of Seattle. As the buildings change around the city, residents are noticing the people and businesses that are changing with them. Next week's episode includes the perspective of two residents who have spent a combined century in Seattle, along with a younger Seattle native. You'll hear from Wendy Colgan. Yeah, I mean, everything feels pretty shiny and pretty corporate. Um, even the restaurant culture that once was around doesn't feel very varied anymore. You'll hear from Alicia Cross. You start to lose control. You start to lose, you know, uh, uh, businesses. You start to lose like, like a, uh, the uh, cultural connection that should exist in your community. And you'll hear from Damon Bomar. I lived in a block where everyone on my block between Marion and Columbia on 24th um, there was five black families, and literally now it's one. Everybody owned their house, and everybody sold it. Um, that culture is just not there anymore. I mean, we still have the Emoja Fest and and that parade, but it used to be a thing. The Langston Hughes Performing Arts Play used to be at down at Paramount. It used to pack the theater. You know, all of these community-oriented events are gone. I hope you'll join me next week. Until then, 
I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast.